Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs and business people that are out there making it happen and today we have a very special guest, his name is Zubin Mulavi who is an amazing entrepreneur and you'll hear a bit about his story shortly but he's been in the entrepreneurial space for 20 years, he's had a lot of uh, successes and lessons along his journey, Uh, he secured a big contract with Shopify plus in 2015 Um, and he also started collaborating with Gary Vaynerchuk in 2017 and they built a really strong relationship and then they recently started together Vayner Commerce which he currently sits as a president of that so he's going to share a bit about his story and context there's so much value in this episode so I hope you enjoy sit back enjoy this interview with Zubin Malavi. Okay, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the One Shop Movement Podcast, where we dive deep into the stories of entrepreneurs, business people, anyone that's out there making it happen. And today we are with a very special guest, Zubin Malavi, who is a, well, I actually come across Zubin as I'm a high consumer of content and in particular Gary V's content and I heard an interview with Zabine and Gary recently so I tracked down Zabine to see if he'd be on uh, the show but his background is uh, quite a diverse and amazing story. He's been in business for a very long time and he's someone that I'd call an innovator and one of the I guess the change makers, someone that's usually in when the trends are just about to take off and he's been in business and a pioneer of the digital marketing space. He landed a huge contract for Shopify back in 2015 and in 2017 started collaborating with Gary Vee and they um, come together to form Vayner Commerce, which he's now the president of and I'm sure he'll share a little bit about that story. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure to be with you. Uh, really enjoyed our interactions to date and looking forward to chatting today. Cool. And I always like to invite people to just really set the scene and unpackage a story. We have had a conversation prior to this and, you know, you've you've had a couple of false starts, a couple of real big wins. Um, yeah, if you want to just in a, a few minutes or a minute or so, just share your story. Absolutely. And, and certainly had more false starts and. <laughs> And, and failures, if you want to put it that way, than, than wins. But I think it's about, um, it's really about wanting to progress, at least for me anyway. And I'll, I'll tell you the story and whatnot, but kind of the theme for me, and I was talking to somebody this morning, um, a friend of mine uh, that I'm actually working on some music with, and, and the conversation was around kind of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and we've felt stagnant for the last few months. And what I was mentioning to him is like, for me, it's not a matter of, the false starts or the failures, what, what really bothers me is when it hits a moment of stagnancy and things just aren't progressing. And I just feel like, why are we not getting somewhere? What are we doing? And, and, and to give you a sense, so um, uh, early on, I was born in Iran, moved to the US uh, when I was six years old uh, with my family and grew up in uh, Illinois, in Champaign, Illinois, college town. Most of the people that uh, live and work there either went to school there uh, or somehow associated with a uh, university. Um, and we lived there for a number of years. Uh, my m- uh, mother got her PhD at the University of Illinois. 
Uh, and then we ended up moving to Southern California, mostly because we had a lot of friends and family here. And we still have uh, lovely friends in Illinois that we stay in touch with regularly, but we just had more family in, in California and uh, obviously loved the weather, loved coming, uh, going to holiday here to California. And, and so decided to move here. Uh, and it was my final year of high school. So that was quite challenging and interesting. And the, the challenging part was you don't really know anybody other than a few family friends that have been introduced to you because um, because you're the new kid in town and your family knows some people and you meet some people. Um, but some of the friends that I have to date that I speak to regularly, I met actually senior year of high school here in Southern California. Um, the, the challenging part, obviously, being the fact that I didn't know anybody. But the opportunity was interesting because when you grow up in a town, um, any town, from the point where you're young until you grow up, at some point, an opinion is formed of you. Uh, it could be at any point. But that, when that opinion is formed of you, it's very hard to change that opinion. Um, and for me, I was very nerdy. I wasn't very uh, athletic in, in middle school and high school and whatnot. And I was just, uh, there was this persona. And when I moved to Southern California, it was like all of a sudden I could shift that persona. So like I no longer had glasses. I had contact lenses. I'm like, okay, well, who do I want to be? What do I want to be now? And I can kind of be uh, comfortable being myself uh, in, in whatever facet I wanted to be. So that was interesting from an opportunity standpoint. Um, then decided to go to school here uh, at University of California, Irvine, got my degree in computer engineering. But having been ambitious since I was a kid and just wanting to try things, I was working at my uncle's print shop um, freshman year of uh, university, uh, year one. And, um, and people kept coming in and asking for websites and flash animation and this, that, the other. Uh, and and I, I asked my uncle, I said, look, let's just set up a company doing this. Now, mind you, at that point, I didn't really understand what it meant to set up a company or any of that stuff. It just meant to me that I would have my own office. Um, so I was excited about that. Um, and, and that's really an interesting point that I'll come to in a bit about the right goals versus the wrong goals, right? And, and at the time, for me, a goal was having an office. And I'm like, okay, I'm a freshman, first year in university. I'll be the only person that I know that has their own company and their own office. And so that was like the goal for me. Now, obviously it didn't go well, right? For the first few years, um, because I didn't know how to really run a business. I didn't know how to deliver properly, professionally sales. I didn't even know anything about sales. I mean, yeah, I was in a conversation and, and tried to sell, sell somebody, but didn't know how to negotiate, didn't know, I didn't even know what PL stood for or balance sheet or any of that stuff. Um, and, mind you, I'm still going to university. So both sides of um, my kind of attention at that time, uh, or the focus that I should have that bifurcated focus between work and, and school, both of those sides um, didn't get enough love or attention as they should have. Um, it was more about width at the time for me, not depth. Um, come to find out later what that even means, um, in terms of really not having gone and fully focused on university which would have led me in a different direction or said, you know what, I'm going to put university on hold and fully focus on work and, and immerse myself in learning and not just doing. Um, anyway, do that for a few years, uh, graduated in 2004 with a bachelor's degree. So I'm like, okay, I have that. Now I have to decide what I want to do. Uh, do I want to continue doing this? It really wasn't going well. We didn't have any recurring revenue. We had to close the office. Actually, the one thing that I wanted, the one thing that I was excited about, we had to close because we couldn't really afford to keep it anymore. Um, so I went back into my uncle's print shop, helped him there and still had the entity going and just did some side work. 
connected with a family friend who was mentoring me at the time. Her background was in PR and marketing. Um, and serendipitously, her company was acquired by a larger organization. She didn't want to move. I convinced her to come on board so we can build the agency as a full service agency instead of just me doing websites here and there. She came on board, helped me build the agency for a few years. Um, again, thinking about goals and, and, and at that time, it was more a matter of, okay, we have our first employee and our second employee. And so for me, again, at that time, success was number of employees. It wasn't about business outcomes that people know about today, about revenue and EBITDA and margin growth and year-over-year -year growth and the health of the business and um, cash conversion cycles and things of that nature. It was literally, great, I've got 20 employees and how long can I keep this business going, right? Like meaning, how, what kind of runway do I have in terms of existing business and clientele to say, okay, I'm good for six months, um, that was my mentality at the time. So she helped me build it. She uh, later moved on. And in and the type of work we did at that point when she came on board, uh, where we're located, there are a lot of um, medical device biotech companies. And so we were supporting them in their marketing activities. And if you can imagine, these are kind of older school organizations that don't typically have younger people handling their marketing advertising. Again, they're older school organizations with older school agencies. So we were kind of the young kids on the block coming in and helping a med device company with what they're doing uh, or a biotech company. And, and we were all pretty quick studies. So we would get up to speed pretty quickly on what um, they were doing, their competitive set, et cetera, and give them ideas that were quite creative and, and innovative uh, for them in terms of web tech uh, advertising, et cetera. So that went on for a number of years, but again, we'd never really planned our goals for example, we never said, look, we're, we did this much in revenue this year. Now that we know kind of we have a, a footing, this is what we are targeting next year and the following year. And let's back into that with regards to what our average uh, annual revenue is per client. How many do we need to um, get? Now, if we need to get 10 new clients, how many do we need to reach out to? What's our close rate per uh, cycle, per phase of the sales cycle? Things of that nature that everybody knows nowadays. We never did any of that. So our growth was organic. Our, um, our, our trajectory was serendipitous. Uh, at, at some point, we realized like we can't really continue going in this direction because we can't get the recurring revenue we need. So um, again, serendipitously, and I've used that word several times now, I apologize, but we met um, the folks at Shopify Plus and we had done some e-commerce work in the past. And we, within six months to a year, we pivoted our entire organization into supporting Shopify Plus and started building sites on there, started supporting the merchants. And this was at a point where Shopify Plus was just getting into the market, the, the mid-market enterprise market. So there were a lot of opportunities for agencies and we did quite a bit of good work. And I think if, if I look back on the last 20 years um, or even previous to that, what kept us going and what kept us alive was our ability to pivot on a dime and within moments notice, within two months, even though we weren't good planners, I think what that allowed us to do is always be on our toes and pivot when necessary. So that allowed us to quickly shift into e-commerce, get into it, and then we found our niche. And then we went deep. And we went deep and we got clients and we started getting recurring revenue. We started building the agency properly, thinking about the right things. And from there, we ended up going into... Um, bigger opportunities and, and essentially um, 
went to uh, larger opportunities, bigger meetings. At some point, and this is an interesting story, um, we ended up, um, one of the folks at Shopify Plus that we worked closely with, Robbie Deeks, uh, I, was, I remember vividly, I was in an airport in San Francisco. Uh, this is September 2017, and he called me and he said, look, I'm thinking about um, making a change. I might leave Shopify. I've got a meeting with Gary Vaynerchuk this afternoon. Are you familiar with Gary V? I'm like, I'm familiar with him, not to a great extent. Um, I'm a, I know of him. And the reason I knew of him is because clients had previously come to us uh, when we were supporting their marketing, advertising, PR, et cetera, and saying to us, you know, this person at our company, he's really well-spoken, et cetera. We want him to be this Gary V of CRM, or we want him to be the Gary V of healthcare, or the Gary V of this. And that, that was my only knowledge of Gary V. So from there, we ended up, um, uh, Robbie mentioned to me that he's talking to Gary. Then he had a good conversation with Gary, and Gary's... Um, well known for having like five, 10 minute meetings, 15 minute meetings with people. So Robbie had 15 minutes with him. They spoke. Robbie said, look, I think there's an opportunity within VaynerMedia on the e-com team um, to expand e-commerce. And they had a pretty solid e-commerce team, primarily offering strategy and consulting. Um, and he said, look, let's grow this together. Um, from there, um, Robbie called me and said, look, we, uh, Gary wants to meet you because what I mentioned to him is for this to be successful, we need to bring in an engineering shop. And I can't think of a better organization than you guys of all the ones that I've worked with that would gel well with Gary and VaynerMedia and whatnot. So, um, December, 2017, meet Gary for breakfast. Um, and again, having done research at that point on who he is, what he does, how he meets, realizing that he meets for 10, 15 minutes, we had an hour together. So it's funny, um, now we talk about the fact that Robbie had 15 minutes and had to figure out how to kind of get everything through in 15 minutes. And I had like an hour and a half with him. Um, and I'm like, okay, what am I gonna talk about with this guy for an hour and a half? Um, but, but the thing that you get to know about him very quickly is very, he's very easy to talk to. And you can get quite a bit of, you can go in multiple directions and the conversation goes off and, and whatnot, but you ultimately end up um, gaining quite a bit uh, on both sides. And I think the value that I got from that conversation um, as, as I believe Gary did as well, like we, we saw eye to eye on, um, the future of direct to consumer e-commerce, the fact that it needs to be multi-threaded. You can't just go after one channel. And the fact that ultimately there are just too many agencies doing too many different things. And once an agent, once a brand grows, they engage in one agency for Facebook, another for Google, one for retention, one for tech, like we were doing. So we said, look, let's come together and do all this under one roof. Um, and, and. And, and, and make it happen for these brands and help them achieve business outcomes. So ironically, having built an organization uh, for the first few years, not even considering business outcomes, now we were in a position to not only achieve business outcomes for ourselves, but, but identify them and help other organizations achieve it. Um, so we met, we worked together for two years, hit it off uh, organizationally, and then we decided late last year to um, kind of consummate things and come together and form a new entity under VaynerX, Vayner Commerce. Um, so VaynerX acquired my agency. And uh, since February, um, we've just been kind of going out there and helping these organizations uh, achieve full funnel growth. And the great thing about it is we've been working together for two years in terms of the team that I uh, inherited from Vayner, as well as the team that we brought over. Um, and so it's been quite a smooth transition. And, and again, with what's happened over the last few months with COVID and shopping behavior changing, um, it's quite fascinating kind of coming into it at this point. 
Yeah, and I mean you've brought up a whole heap of different um, parts of the conversation there, and and um, and we will touch on all of them. But I always, you know, I, what I say to people um, that want to have success in life, they've got to you know build their network and their connections, and you know if you build and establish meaningful relationships with people, opportunities can open up. And as you described there, that you know, that relationship with someone who introduced you to Gary, um, you and Gary started collaborating for two years. Now you've got, you know, a, a business that's, you know, ready to go to next level. Like, would you say, oh, I guess you, you've experienced it, um, that the connections are critical in your success in life? Absolutely. And I think that you're spot on there. It's about those connections and it's about meaningful connections. And going back to what I was mentioning about my uh, childhood and moving, what you realize um, at some point, hopefully sooner in life rather than later, um, it's about those authentic connections and it's about genuinity and it's about knowing who you are, or even if you don't know who you are, it's about being honest about who you are at the, at the time. Like we all evolve, we change, et cetera, but just being open and honest about it because that way you're able to identify and find people that can mitigate and fill the gaps that you have. I think the, the, what I've observed in myself and others is that everybody is great at one, two, three, five things, whatever, but oftentimes the things they're great in are the things that they personally don't value. And then they try to go deep in a different area altogether that isn't true to who they are. Whereas if they really lean into what they're great at and be honest and transparent and self-aware about what they're not, then they can find those people who have counter, um, counter kind of situations where they're great at something that they can fill and vice versa. And then to your point, yeah, it's, about, it's, it's all about relationships. And it's all about, um, again, I wasn't aware of Gary's philosophy on these things and, other, and, 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 and whatnot until very recently. But he talks about this jab, 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 left hook. And really what he's talking about, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's like continually give people value before you ask for it. And it's, it, that's the way he positions it. But it's something that everybody kind of, a lot of people think about. They just don't know how to um, explain it that way. But the reality is that when you're getting started in something, or when you're establishing something, there's no downside in giving and, and giving in those relationships and in those opportunities. And hopefully somebody will give to you. But even if they don't, there's a lot more, um, I don't know, personal um, happiness and fulfillment uh, in giving and helping people out than there is in just asking people for stuff. At least that's how I feel. Yeah, I totally agree, and I uh, I dedicate one of the chapters in my new book about that very conversation and, and your example there. And I found my first mentor through generosity, really, and I didn't know who he was. Um, I donated a whole heap of um, six month gym memberships to uh, one of the top tier basketball clubs as a sponsorship. One of the players' wives bought them in, gave them to me. A young family come to do a free week trial at my gym. Um, they joined up. I thought, wow, that's four new members in one hit. I gave them the basketballs for gesture, uh, basketball tickets for gesture. They went out, come back next week, and they 
Um, he's been my mentor for the last 20 years and he was a high profile businessman who's taught me everything about investing in property. He's helped me navigate through a whole heap of business challenges, including the GFC and that generosity and that sincerity pays you back in spades. So it's a powerful lesson. And and just on the next point I wanted to talk about, because we're talking about relationships and connections, my podcast, you know, I'm up to over a hundred. I started this year, it's funny, uh, 2020 has been a weird year. I come into the year with one plan and direction that I was going to go. And I my plan was to do this podcast, to launch my book and so on. But usually I'm traveling around the world 20 weeks a year. Um, and I didn't... Um, I wanted to just be able to release one episode a week and um, just through connections, people are just referring, you know, high-quality guests to me left, right and centre. I'm doing like five or six interviews a week now and, um, yeah, things have changed because of COVID-19 and you've come into February 2020 with, uh, with your merger with Gary is probably, you know, I, I guess when you were talking about it, wasn't expecting that to happen but I have interviewed a lot of people um, in the digital marketing agency space that have had a lot of success and they're seeing the bigger players and the players that have it really well put together are really thriving and the people that haven't really got a good business engine behind them are really falling behind here. Is that what you're seeing in the digital marketing agency space? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when we think about the business, right? So part of it's sales. The one thing you realize working with many companies. So the nice thing about digital marketing, advertising, tech, there's the whole agency space is you get exposed to so many companies. And, and if you just pay attention and listen, you realize why some of them fail, why they succeed. I think one of the critical things is, is, is sales. And, and we worked with so many software companies, some of which had the best actual solution in market, but they just didn't have sales and others that just had the worst solution and amazing sales. Now, obviously you need to balance the two because you don't want attrition um, and you want to maintain these clients. But to your point, the agencies that are able to understand the moment. And when I say the moment, I'm not referring just to um, COVID-19. What I'm referring to is changing consumer behavior and increased uh, concentration or saturation in the marketplace. So you can't just do the same things you were doing three years ago and go run Facebook ads and say, we're going to give you, for example, in e-commerce, we're just going to give you the best return on ad spend or the lowest cost of acquisition, uh, customer acquisition cost. Those things, for example, no longer are, are, are what you should focus on. It's like lifetime value. Which customers do I want to get? Which uh, customers make sense? The interesting thing about this is if you go out and you find a, um, a business, any business, one of the first things that somebody will do when they um, appraise a business is they'll take a look at the customer roster and want to see what uh, the distribution of revenue is. And they want to make sure that none of your customers is more than 20% of your revenue. Because if it is, they'll apply a discount to your company because ultimately if you lose that customer, you lose say 25% of your revenue. The interesting thing about it is there are all these business fundamentals. And yet when it comes to like uh, e-commerce brands, direct to consumer, et cetera, because the focus was build, 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 and then sell, it wasn't about an actual business that's viable. They didn't think about those things. So like the digital marketing agencies that are actually thinking about business outcomes, 
the ones that are looking at long-term growth and mapping all of their micro KPIs to that, those are the ones that are succeeding now because they've, they've been able to understand that in order for an agency to succeed, their clients have to be growing and their clients need to have meaningful, sustainable growth and not just a bubble that they've just grown in and it's just going to fail because they've gone after and, and got a million people to buy their product once versus somebody else who's gotten 100,000 people to buy their products 10 times a year. Um, it's those sorts of things that are really important to consider. And, and to your point, yes, those agencies that were set up for business outcomes to begin with, were focused on the right metrics for their clients. Um, and then ultimately the ones that have a great business and sales operational team that can get out there um, are succeeding because when things like this happen uh, or the GFC, brands change their behavior as well. They spend differently. Uh, they look out there to see other agencies. And so this agency churn occurs. And yes, you lose clients, but you can gain a lot of clients. And if you're positioned properly, you can gain a lot of clients from larger multinational um, agencies because they just are not able to deliver the way you can, dedicating all your resources to a few clients. Mm. Very interesting um, point you just mentioned there too, and what you know what you're doing three years ago just won't cut it today. You you know you need to be up up to date um, with what's happening in consumer behaviours. What are some of the current trends that you would say are happening right now um, during these uncertain times? Yeah, you know it's 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 interesting. Um, th- there's when we think about kind of the market, and, and, and again, I'll focus more on the e-commerce angle of the consumer trends that, that we're seeing and have observed, um, just because that's primarily our forte, but um, a few things that come to mind. Um, there's an organization, analytics firm globally called ACI Worldwide. A few of the things that, that they've observed over the last few months that are interesting. One, 22% of e-commerce transactional volume increased in May 2020 compared to May 2019. Now, that kind of goes without saying, right? We know that due to COVID, people are buying things online. Um, but, but the things that are interesting are the consumer behavior. Um, so there are a lot of, st- several studies that I've, I've seen recently of in consumer behavior over the last three years, not just, um, not just right now, but over the last three years. And what's interesting is once consumers purchase something online, in many categories, they never go back to purchasing it the same way they bought it before. And I think that's incredibly compelling when you think about the fact that this isn't a period of time where um, things are shifting towards e-commerce and then they'll shift back. E-commerce is growing more rapidly, has grown more rapidly in the last five months than the last five years. The market share of purchases online and certain things are just going to continually get purchased online. I mean, if you look at another study from where to go, 87% of Americans are now shopping online. 64% say they're replacing weekly shopping trips with online orders. But the most compelling thing, I think, is that 55% of Americans have purchased items online from websites and retailers they would never shopped from before. Hmm. So, I mean, when you look at it from that vantage point, you're thinking, okay, how is consumer behavior changing? People are buying more online, they're sticking to purchasing online, and it's giving new brands an opportunity to get out there and position themselves 
and get consumers to buy their products. Mm, very good. And and I, I have to be admit it might make me look a bit like a dinosaur, but I am quite a tech and innovative, trend-driven person, but I'd never really used Uber Eats um, until recent times in COVID-19. And now I'm a, a regular user because I, I live maybe 100 metres from, you know, an amazing restaurant and shopping uh, strip. So retail strips, so I just like walking up and down my street to shop but now you're sort of forced into uh, Uber Eats and that so that's a, a pretty good example of that. Yeah you know what else um, we have a service in the US I don't know if you have it there it's called Instacart. No. Um, so Instacart is like Uber Eats for grocery delivery. Ah. So they had started this uh, I think a couple of years ago and they got some traction, but they have just blown up over the course of the last few months, obviously, because now you can go two reasons. One, because people want to buy uh, groceries and they'd rather have it delivered. Two, imagine all the people that used to drive for Uber and Lyft um, that are doing Uber Eats and, and, and maybe they're doing some other uh, food service, uh, as they call them, delivery service providers. But now you've got all of those individuals available for work. And typically they sign up for multiple platforms. So they'll sign up for Instacart as well. Um, and Instacart had been building this for a while. And so the infrastructure was there and th their model's brilliant because you pay a monthly fee if you want and your delivery service charge is free and you just tip the, the individual who's delivering it for you. Um, and what the, the moment I realized that Instacart was a big deal wasn't when we were using it and everybody we knew was using it. It's when the large Fortune 500 CPGs and new CPGs that we're supporting now that are just going to market with products when it is a critical component of what they do. So when we're thinking about media and we're thinking about the different channels, you, you have phys physical retail, you have direct to consumer, and almost all of them are asking about our strategies and we're positioning things for them for the Instacarts or the delivery service providers of the world because they recognize the fact that if I'm going to purchase this sparkling water, if Perrier advertises for, to me on uh, Instacart and Uber Eats and whatnot, um, then I'm more likely to purchase their product when I'm buying sparkling water than something else because that's how I'm now getting my groceries. So it's, it's quite a fascinating thing. And I think what, what I'm curious to see come out of all of this um, is how the consumer psyche changes in terms of when in our minds we feel like going to the store versus purchasing something online and or getting it delivered for us. And, and things have become so accessible now that um, for, for heavy things like cases of water and whatnot, when it's not that much more expensive or it's about the same price as picking it up in store, why not set those things up a subscription and have them come to your house? But it's going to be interesting to see um, how consumers start to really adopt and use a dot-com of a brand versus an Amazon versus a delivery service versus going to the store. Hmm. Very interesting insight. Um, just, uh, I guess, nearly a, a, a might be a 101 type of case study for someone in e-commerce, but I'm just about to launch my book. I'm just doing the last review. Um, I've built a, a let's say, sub-$500 
e-commerce course around it as a you know what you'd say you've read the book you've got value you've learnt lessons going into there um would you consider on launch packaging a book an e-commerce course and maybe an implementation session into a launch and how or how would you go about doing that when you're talking about implementation session it would be like a consulting session with you yeah, so they've gone through everything. They've read your book. They've got value. They've done your course. But I was thinking the, you know, the implementation is like the, you know, have a conversation with Absolutely. the person. So I think it's an excellent question. It has to do with the lifetime value and consumer journey that you're looking for. So ultimately, um, let's think about the the price point. I'm assuming that the book is the least expensive. Mm. Then the e-commerce course, mm. then the um, yeah implementation. Implementation, exactly. So one way to think about this is the book should lead to the second and the second should lead to the third. Now, mm. in terms of packaging them, I think that um, what I would do is test three packages. So the book and the course, the book and the implementation, and then all three. Yeah. Um, and, and get a sense of, and, 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 and furthermore, what I would do is have some sort of scarcity model with the, the two or three packages, whereby um, it's limited to a certain number of people. Um, because your time is limited and for the, for the all three, right? limited to a certain, certain number of um, organizations per month or per quarter, or just on release um, with a discount that look, these three are going to be this much. Um, and I would make it very clear on your site when you launch that you have the book, you've got the e-commerce sessions and you have implementation. And those are just three things that are available. Anyone can basically procure any of them and then bundle because it's a launch, the three together, for example, it's limited to 10 organizations. This is the price point. Um, that's how I would do it. But, but ultimately, I think the key is going to be setting up a, um, a, in, an engaging and effective um, email and SMS campaign for those who purchase the book. Now, the interesting thing is because you're selling a book, the book has a lot of valuable insight in it. And so leveraging that and leveraging the e-com coursework into those emails and SMS and whatnot is how you're going to drive from one to the next to the next. But unlike other products where, I mean, for again, example, Perrier, they've got to just come up with content to get me to buy something else, another one of their products. The content is the product. So how do you, not how do you, but it's essentially mapping that entire uh, content journey for the individual who buys the book, the individual who buys the course and the individual um, that ultimately uh, with, with intention of getting them to go across that entire funnel. And I think the same way that when you thought about the book and you had an outline and from there you expanded and expanded and expanded, it's the same thing here. Think about the outline of if somebody buys my book, what value are they going to get? Um, week one, let's assume they read 20 pages or whatever that is. How can I tease the next set and get them? Because the goal should be to get them to complete the book. And when they finish the book, they want more. But start teasing the e-com uh, coursework, start teasing the implementation. Uh, but absolutely, I think it would be a great idea to package them all at once and just get a sense of 
what sort of um, adoption you get. Because the other thing that uh, we recognize as well in terms of having like these courses and, um, and, and sessions and conferences and whatnot is it takes a few, it takes a few of them before you perfect it. Hmm. So doing the implementation a few times with those individuals who've read the book and, and had gone through the coursework would be great as well for you just to get a few reps in hmm. um, and, and refine the program and understand more importantly, where they got the value. Hmm. Um, because oftentimes we think we know what value they're going to get out of it, but then you get 10 to go through it and they give you a completely different answer. And then that helps you in terms of marketing it and explain to people what kind of value they'll get out of it moving forward. Hmm. Great uh, insight. And I always like to pick the brains of, you know, I, I interviewed Dr. Martini, So I, I actually asked him a question around um, being in the, uh, having a stillborn baby and the mind and how that was working at the time. So it's always good to uh, see how people think about case studies in a moment. So I really enjoyed that um, what about just uh, Joe Rogan recently sold his podcast for effectively a hundred million, and then Spotify's value went up X amount of time, X amount of dollars as well? Did you? I know Gary has done a little bit of commentary on that, but do you want to explain? I guess how that can really work in terms of the impact on uh, Spotify's. Yeah, look, the way I guess that, you know, the way I read it and was he sold his um, effectively database and content to Spotify, $100 million, and then somebody made a point that if he sold it for $80 million and kept $20 million worth of shares and then the Spotify company value went up considerably. Yeah, I mean, so in full candor, I don't, know that much about the transaction but i think when you think about spotify or any other channel like that it's about um active users and so they're essentially um when they purchase joe rogan's library they have exclusive access to old material the entire catalog as well as everything new so they're getting an entirely new audience uh, that is there to access and you can basically get Spotify for free and their advertisements or you get Spotify premium um, and you pay for it. So they're going to get a completely um, new set of users as they probably already have. Um, and, and, and that really helps them with, with the adoption standpoint. Like they, they launched their uh, podcast um, side of Spotify um, and it's fantastic. And, and I think they, they needed that kind of anchor type of publicity as well as individual who's going to get net new listeners. Um, and, and part of it's a game, right? Part of the reason the stock goes up is because they get a longer runway and, and there it solidifies the viability of that platform in the marketplace where you've got title and you've got Apple music and now you've got Spotify or you've had Spotify for a while. It's, would those two take market share away from Spotify? How's it going to work? How can Spotify increase market share? So I think just bringing those net new customers in or, or, or listeners is critical. Now, in terms of Joe Rogan's deal specifically, yeah, I mean, I think it, it would make a lot of sense. But again, I don't know the specifics of it. Maybe the 100 million is cash and stock and it's not just cash. And, and I'm sure it's over a certain number of years and, uh, and, and whatnot. But but ultimately, that's just probably the first part of the entire thing. I mean, he's mm. going to continually produce 
and maybe it's uh, advanced payment for a few years, but that'll get him um, even more uh, of an audience and position him differently. And I think when, when we think about kind of anyone who's out there with the podcast uh, that, that's doing well, like yourself, it's about getting as many people to talk about it and maximizing distribution. Um, mm-hmm. So part of the interesting thing is when he commits to Spotify, he's basically only on Spotify mm-hmm. versus anywhere else. But I mean, in that sense, the amount of dollars we're talking about, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, and the reason I ask that question is I know Gary and you know, Vayner Media and Vayner Commerce and that are big content producers. When you see a test case like that, does the vision of the company change? Because I don't know if, you know, um, the you know I know Gary would and Vayner would have a lot of people following all the amount of content that you produce. Does that just change the ball game from that perspective? I don't think it does because I think that Gary understands the value of his content that he has for years. He was one of the first people to produce content on YouTube. I think one of the most compelling things that he does, and he talks about this all the time and he recommends other people do it as well. They just, many people can't, um, is he will take uh, content and his team will basically cut that content into multiple things. So for example, uh, we'll have an episode of Coffee and Commerce. We'll have it live on Twitter. Then it'll go on YouTube. And that's just in the, in the original format. Then it's on his Gary Vee audio experience. Then they might take a quote out of what he did and make a graphic out of it. Uh, then they'll make a little video excerpt for TikTok or Instagram or this, that, the other. And, and they are fantastic at that. But I think what what is critical and different in my mind about Joe Rogan, who's in his lane with his podcast versus a Gary is Gary is just continually giving people insight and information. Um, and, and that is what he's about. And I think that what's amazing about it is it's a one-to-one interaction and, and oftentimes in, in the, the conversation, but many people benefit from it. So it's one-to-one to many. And, and that's because people, he'll have a tea with Gary V. He'll give somebody advice. A thousand other people will listen to it and benefit from it. Um, and, and it's different, right, than if he just focused on one channel and did that. The other thing that I've found quite compelling, and I've discussed this with Gary as well on, on our Coffee and Commerce show, um, perhaps the most, again, someone not knowing him very well to over the last two years getting to know him to then working with him. The thing that has impressed me the most about him is the influence and respect he has among varying types of individuals. I'm talking about from the 18 to 24 year old, 16 year old, he was named one of the most influential people for Gen Z, along with LeBron James and whatnot on TikTok. And then you've got like Fortune 500 CEOs, C-level people uh, that respect him and, and, and everyone in between. And I think it's because he's genuine, he has a good point of view on things and he says it how it is and he's had a good track record of being right. Um, but in terms of his and, and VaynerMedia's shift on content, I think he's known that content is the most valuable thing and he harps on it all the time. And, and really when technology gets commoditized as it has with Facebook, Shopify, et cetera, when distribution's commoditized, when products are commoditized, what's going to help you stand out content and your ability as a brand to produce content at scale, test that content similar to what we were talking about in terms of your book release um, and find right. 
And, and that ability to find right or that mindset of wanting to find right as opposed to thinking you are right requires a ton of content. Mm. And so just going through the reps, doing all of this, they've realized what works um, and, and they double down on it. They test quite a lot of stuff, different types of content, et cetera. But that's the game. And I don't think his game is ever going to be focusing on one channel. And, and he talks frequently about if this uh, channel disappears or that channel disappears, it's about you and it's about your ability to produce content on something else. Mm. And just uh, the last question before I get into the end part of the show, um, what's your view on all the different social channels like LinkedIn's becoming a bit of a beast of a, a channel um, amongst a lot of, I guess, business e-com people at the moment? What's your site? I mean, I think Facebook is like friends and family and um, personal photos. It's, it's, it's a little bit more... Uh, like your life, your entire life. Um, however, Facebook does quite well in terms of conversion for generating marketing qualified leads for uh, B2B advertising, sales for e-commerce. Um, Instagram is more kind of showing the parts of your life that you want people to see. At least that's how I see it and aspirational, if you will. Um, TikTok is an interesting one because somebody mentioned this to me recently and I thought it was fascinating that TikTok is all positive effort-driven videos. So people are putting effort. They're, they're spending time. They're doing cool things. It puts a smile on your face when you go on TikTok because you're seeing cool things happen. I think that's amazing and changing the consumer behavior or the, the, the consumer action, the user action of just posting a great picture of themselves on the beach and wherever and actually putting effort into producing a great choreography or a great... Uh, football move or whatever it is. So, so I think that's amazing. YouTube, obviously, we know what that is. And then LinkedIn is, is really interesting for business because you can, what I'd like to do with LinkedIn is, is not necessarily engage as much as LinkedIn, but find prospects, engage with people that reach out to me, but really identify companies and individuals in those companies. And then sometimes reach out to them in LinkedIn Sales Navigator, but I just don't find it that effective because I think everybody's sending messages to everybody but it's really more a matter of finding those people and then taking the more um, traditional approach of picking up the phone, calling them, uh, getting through to them, emailing them, et cetera. Those sorts of things, um, as long as you have the permission, I think it works. And it, it's, it's really a matter of, yes, it is the platform for business, but I think you can do it differently. And again, content we're talking about, post content. I mean, the wealth of knowledge that you're gonna have when you release your book, for example, taking some of those things and, and, and uh, and listing them as posting them as articles on LinkedIn and getting engagement there is fantastic. And I think one of the things that uh, I think Gary was on CNBC here in the US today. Um, and if I read correctly, what, one of the things he was saying that he likes most about TikTok and LinkedIn is that people can randomly find your content versus the Facebook algorithms and, 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 and uh, um, Instagram where people see stuff that they want to see and the algorithm kind of controls that. You just randomly see stuff and so you get random engagement on LinkedIn and you'll see somebody with uh, 500 connections have 10,000 uh, engagements on an article they wrote. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think for business, it, it absolutely is critical. And look, many of the people that are listening in right now aren't necessarily going to be entrepreneurs right now. They might be working somewhere else. They're looking for a job and, and the new CV, the new um, kind of profile on you is, is your social profile and your LinkedIn profile. And, and your thought leadership and, and 
sharing your expertise online and, and LinkedIn is the best platform for that sort of thing. Mm, totally agree. At the end of every episode, I always ask a few rapid fire questions that don't necessarily have to have rapid fire answers, but is there a book or a, a podcast um, that you listen to and get a lot of value out of or read? Book, uh, Ray Dalio's Principles. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I reference it from time to time. Podcasts, interestingly enough, I don't really listen to uh, many business podcasts. I uh, am an avid uh, Arsenal football fan. And uh, Arscast out of the UK is something that I listen to weekly, uh, even in the off season. Right. Um, and yeah, Ray Dalio, I always, when I'm a guest on a podcast and I get asked that question, I always say that book too. So great minds think alike. What about best uh, bit of advice you've ever received? Best bit of advice I ever received was from my attorney, who was also uh, my mentor. And he told me, when somebody agrees with you, just shut up. We were in negotiations, uh, like legal uh, financial negotiations with a client. They said yes. And I kept talking and said after to me, when somebody says yes, you just shut up and you move on because there's nothing that can come out of your mouth that will make it more than a yes. It's only going to bring it down. Mm, that's good advice. I actually do say that to my wife quite regularly. I say, don't, no point bringing up an objection. We're already past the sale. <laughs> exactly. uh, what about the worst bit of advice you've ever received? Worst bit of advice I ever received. Worst bit of advice I ever received was um, perhaps about not being transparent. Um, not sharing pricing, not being open about those sorts of things. And I think it comes from a place of fear. Uh, whereas what I've realized is when you're open about your pricing and your services and this, that, the other, you end up weeding out the people that can't work with you and attracting the ones they can't. Hmm. Good advice. And uh, I see that you and hear that you are uh, into music. Is that your true passion or is it travel or eating out at fancy restaurants? Um... I think it's a combination. For me, it's about lifestyle. It's about spending time with family and friends, doing the things that you mentioned, and writing and producing music. And then listening to that, honestly, and the reason I do it and the reason why uh, my partner, uh, Toma, and I do it, uh, and, and, and our, um, we're, we've just started releasing music under Molavi, M-O-L-A-V-I-E. So my last name is Molavi, but we spelled it uh, in a more French way because he's, he's French and la vie in French means life. Um, we are writing and producing the music that we like to hear in those instances when we're with friends and family and in the lifestyle. So that, that's really where music for me, it like reinforces the mood or creates a mood uh, that, that is enjoyable for me. And what about where do people find you? Is it website, social? Um, how would people be able to look at different programs that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think Twitter, uh, is where I'm most active at Zubin Molavi, Z-U-B-I-N-M-O-W-L-A-V-I. Um, it's where I need to post more. Uh, I will post more, but it's where all of our shows are. Uh, but it's really where I'm on all the time. I mean, it's just in terms of engagement with people as well as I consume a lot of news there. I look at a lot of uh, information and articles. I just enjoy being on Twitter. Mm. And from me, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's, uh, we've had a conversation before the show, which was really enjoyable, and I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of uh, your insights today. So thank you very much. Craig, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'd love to do this again and uh, really excited to read your book. So please let me know when it comes out. <laughs>
Well, I hope you got a lot of value out of that interview. It was certainly power-packed. There's so many takeaways. Some that spring to mind was, you know, he continued to um, pursue his dreams on his entrepreneurial journey when there was many uh, challenges along the way. Um, he also shared a bit about the power of relationships and connections, and we just dived into his superpower, the digital marketing uh, e-commerce space. So I hope you got a lot of value out of it. If you did, please make sure you share it with your network your contacts you give us reviews feedbacks it's really important for able to be able to secure more high quality guests like Zubin um, if you haven't got a copy of my book you've got one shot head across to my website at craigschultz.com and check out all throughout the website we have amazing blogs and contents I'm blogging a lot on there at the moment so make sure that you tour around that website download some of the free tools and resources Sources as well. At the end of every episode, I always say to people, you got one shot at life, go out there and give it your best shot. Live life with passion and purpose. My name's Craig Schultz and I'm the host of the One Shot Movement podcast.